This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Women, a special two-part series made in collaboration with Netflix. I'm Latoya Ferguson. And I'm Ange Faragudo. This is the second episode in this miniseries uh, in which we discuss some of the most, you know, fascinating female characters on Netflix's original series. Last week we discussed Ozark, and uh, this week we'll be getting into Unorthodox, a four-part limited series created by Anna Winger and Alexa Karolinski that was nominated for eight Emmys this year. And Latoya, you had the chance to talk to Anna Winger, as well as Shira Haas, who stars in the series as Esty, a woman who escapes her conservative Hasidic community in East Williamsburg for a new life in Berlin. Unorthodox became a surprise hit when it debuted on Netflix in March. And I think a lot thanks to the character of Esty. While many viewers may not have experience with her religion, I think a lot of women can still see themselves in Esty. And leaving one community and seeking out another on your own is kind of a universal experience, regardless of gender. And just FYI, uh, there will be spoilers for the series. So Unorthodox uh, stars Shira Haas as Esti, a 19-year-old Jewish woman who is in an unhappy marriage, uh, arranged marriage, in an ultra-Orthodox community in Williamsburg, uh, as Ange noted. Uh, She decides to run away to Berlin to find her estranged mother And from there, she discovers uh, a whole new world, a whole new life that she was always taught to fear. Uh, In the process, her husband Yanki, played by Amit Rahav, follows her to Berlin to find her and bring her back by order of their rabbi. Yeah, um, what I think is interesting about this story, so this is obviously based on a true story, but... Um, I highly recommend watching the uh, documentary alongside it. It's about 20 minutes long, but it gets into how Esty's story in Brooklyn is based on a true story, but everything in Berlin is made up. And I thought it was really interesting that the world she falls into is music and how that kind of plays into representing her freedom and flexibility. Uh, Latoya, what did you think of the Berlin storyline versus... Uh, her life in Brooklyn. Um, Upon finding out that the Berlin storyline was uh, created specifically just for the show and it wasn't the same as Deborah's, I think it actually speaks to the universality of this whole miniseries where obviously this is a culture you you and I don't really know much about. We're we're not part of this culture. But I think anyone can understand trying to find yourself in a new world, which is what these uh, Berlin scenes do. And then contrasting that with the the Brooklyn scenes, it really helps to make this a a series where you can relate to this despite being from a world away. Uh, I think, which is the thing that really makes this miniseries work as well as it does. It makes it as accessible as it is, despite coming from a completely different perspective. Right. Um, I think a lot of people can also relate to the idea. I mean, I think it's important to note that she is 19. She's so young. And that's usually the age 
where I think a lot of us can get the opportunity to go to college or start our careers or taking these big steps in our lives. And she's doing that, but she's also kind of learning how to become a person and, and do things that she wasn't really given the opportunity to. She wasn't really given opportunities to speak her mind and, and to use her voice is, you know, a very powerful theme that finally comes through in the finale. And I, I really like how it was all kind of woven together. They didn't really like hit it over the head too much. So when she sings in that final episode, it's very powerful and you really understand how much it means to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's a story about finding your voice without having to say every scene, this is about finding your voice. Uh, right, so, right. so when she literally finds her voice, it actually has impact and meaning. And it's because Shirahas is like, she's so small. And that, that's very like evident when you're watching Esty navigate the world, especially the, the, the larger the world gets to it, the, the contrast. And just watching Esty, you know, it's not even necessarily that she's a, a timid character in her Brooklyn world. It's just that she is living this life that she was raised to live. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's doing everything essentially right. And she keeps being told how she's doing it wrong. uh, How there's something wrong with her. And you just progressively, you just see how she gains experiences, how she learns that, you know, there's nothing wrong with her. She finds kinship with people very quickly. Characters who, by the way, we we should discuss her her friend group, because I think it's it's a very diverse and dynamic friend group without shouting, hey, look how diverse we are. Um, right. And it's also interesting, we can talk about the Robert character because I feel like he's less of a character than more like a concept in general. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a, he has a little bit more to him, but it kind of reminded me of the manic pixie dream girl trope of just mm-hmm. this kind of like person of the opposite sex that gets to like represent freedom and and you kind of becoming a new person. It's, it's nice to see her have a relationship with a man, romantic or not, where he's kind of letting her be her own person. And I think that's what Yankee kind of has to discover by the end of the show. And um, the, the actors kind of acknowledge like, yeah, he's stuck in this one way of thinking. He only knows this one truth. But Berlin represents not only a diversity of people, but a diversity of thought in a type of community where all these people are coming together from different backgrounds. I mean, the metaphor of the orchestra is kind of perfect because it's all these different sounds coming together to make, you know, one kind of beautiful piece of music. And I think you see some music too back in Brooklyn in her Orthodox community, but it's only the men singing and it is, it's kind of a little more uniform. I use, again, you also see that with the costumes as well. I think their um, costume design team deserves a shout out because you really see that the palette uh, back in Brooklyn is very dark and, and blue and it's very colorful when she gets to Berlin. Yeah, it's of course very muted uh, in Brooklyn, which again uh, speaks to the, the finding your voice because early on we, you know, we see the flashback where Esty is telling Yankee, you know, when they first meet that how she's different and it's something that Yankees in that conversation seems to be accepting 
of. Mm-hmm. Uh, we quickly learn that's not the case. And there's that, there's that moment where, you know, they're talking about music and she's trying to bond with him. And he talks about, you know, how he performs sometimes. And then uh, he, he's asking her about music and she's like, oh, do I perform? And he's like, of, of course not. Like the, the idea that she would perform music is just preposterous because of, the, you know, the culture and the world in which they live in. So it's, it's that moment where she thinks she's, you know, having this connection with Yankee and it's immediately shut down. Uh, I feel like Yankee's an interesting character just mm-hmm. because I wouldn't sit call him the villain. Uh, if anyone's no, no. the villain, it's it's Moisha. <laughs> Obviously, they, they right. make that pretty obvious. Uh, but I did go back and forth between just being very frustrated with him and feeling for him. Uh, because he, he again, he only does know this one way. And he is so yes. ingrained in this world. And he is so ingrained in what he has been taught, you know, by his family about a man's place and a woman's place. And he is finding this culture shock. And he does want to try as he's in Berlin and he's discovering. But ultimately... Let's say that SD did decide to get back with him at the end. I right. don't think that he would change. Like he may, might change for a little bit, but he would return because of what their society expects from them anyway. And you know that's something that SD is aware of. Right. I agree. Something I appreciated about this show is that the men aren't one note. It's not straightforward. Like it would be very easy to just make Yankee like a restrictive kind of husband that doesn't understand her at all. And I think they make it clear that he was also raised this way and he's also just doing what his family has kind of raised him to do his whole life. And Moisha was like an interesting contrast because I think he's villainous in ways, but he's also what I got from him was that he's very jealous of Estee. He's jealous of the fact that she is leaving and she is stronger than him in ways in that she doesn't return. And now he seems like a man who feels very trapped by his choices and by his guilt for leaving and for returning. We see him gambling on his phone and going out to bars. Like he's definitely a lot looser than Yankee. Uh, And it's interesting to see kind of the perspective from the men. I've read that there are Orthodox Jewish people who think this is the best representation they've seen so far. I think it's probably impossible to get everything 100% right. There's only so much you can do and get in a few hours of TV. But I think What's good about this show is it can also provide opportunities for people to research more and learn more about these people and to get firsthand experiences. There's definitely a lot of, I've seen some writings from people who kind of are pointing out what they got right and what they got wrong. And it's good for people who don't know anything about that world to kind of learn about those other perspectives. I think it's interesting that you, you, you note that Moshe is like jealous of Esty because mm-hmm. I was kind of taken aback by how he is such a complete mess. Everyone in the community knows this, but he's essentially going to, if, if he brings Esty back, uh, he's going to be absolved of all of his sins, even though it's not as though he's changed. Uh, he talks about, you know, wanting his wife and kids back. He, he has a gambling addiction and he, he does not change. And I, I do like 
the touch at the end where he he wins big because I was like, is he just a really bad gambler? Because I don't know if he's a gambler. He has a gambling condition. He's just really bad at it. That could explain everything. But the fact is he is, you know, he does have skill, but at a certain point when you're gambling that much, it doesn't really matter if you have skill because the house always wins. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things where Esty is not going to, get any leniency if she comes back she'll always be the woman who ran away with her child even if she came, right. came back uh whereas the you know the rabbi is talking about how we'll pay all your debts we'll bring you back with your family that he he destroyed it's like the way he can just because he is a man in this world the way that they'll forgive this kind of you know betrayal of their community but they won't forgive sd just for trying to be be a real person essentially yeah, I, th- I think all the characters in the community are kind of beholden to the elders in their community. And that can go for any religion or any kind of tight knit group where guilt is a very powerful tool. I, I-, I wasn't raised uh, with a lot of Jewish people in my neighborhood, but I-, I grew up Roman Catholic and I was an altar server for a very long time. And it was just kind of what you did, you know, when you make choices to leave, it's kind of described as selfish, or you can be made to think that it's like a selfish choice, when really, you're just making a personal choice that has nothing to do with the others around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I personally haven't experienced that. But my mother is a Nigerian immigrant who Mm -hmm. was raised Catholic, went to Catholic school all of her life. Uh, And then early 20s, she moved to like America. And, you know, she still, after all these years, gets grief from certain family members for leaving, you know, her home, for setting off on her own with no one else in her uh, in her 20s. Not even as, you know, a 19 year old girl who's been forced to get married, you know. Right, right. And again, yeah, this is a particular experience for women. You know, like, I think, again, a lot of people can kind of relate to what it's like to leave one group. But I think women also have this extra baggage and kind of feel maybe more beholden to continue family lines or to kind of pass these traditions on. Um, What did you like the most about Shira Haas's performance? Because For me, what I thought was really interesting was that she doesn't speak a lot. So when she does, it's extremely powerful. And I thought her face was just so expressive. And so it was extremely powerful that when she's holding it so tight throughout the show, so when she really does start to fight back or clench her teeth when she's arguing with her husband, or when she smiles, it it really breaks through to the screen. It was really beautiful to watch. Yeah, I I would have to agree with that because there is such an amount of restraint, especially, you know, in the flashbacks, uh, the restraint she has to have in her community. And then there is the restraint when she's just getting to Berlin and she honestly doesn't know what she's doing. And it's just a progressive, you know, softening and lightening that just relief and, you know, the stress kind of falling off her. That moment in the lake where she's just floating she's taken off her wig for the first time and Mm -hmm. she just gets to be, that's uh, such a powerful moment so early on. And the contrast of that with her bathing before her wedding. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I liked how water, um, water represents, you know, a type of purity for her in the Orthodox community. Um, And that's what it represents for the community. And I think it's kind of interesting that they end the first episode in Berlin 
And another element of Berlin that I really appreciated, you know, it's especially shocking that she goes there and, and her family kind of brings that up a lot, but it's interesting how Berlin kind of wears its trauma on its sleeve, as they said. It, they're very open and I think it's kind of well known that in Germany, they make it very clear that they teach children in schools about the Holocaust, about World War II, and they confront the past so that the past does not repeat itself. And trauma is definitely a thread that runs throughout her family back in Brooklyn. And it's important that they learn about it as well, but she kind of confronts it in different ways in both communities. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously teaching it in different ways in both communities too, because in her community, it's kind of out of fear and out of obligation. You know, uh, as she says, they have all these babies because they're trying to replace the six million lost in the Holocaust. Yeah. So that is the the reason why there's such an importance on having children, on having so many children. But that's such a, a burden to put on anyone, honestly, and especially uh, a 19 year old uh, or a 17 year old girl when, you know, when they first get together. So, yeah. What, what did you think about her relationship with the other girls in Berlin? I, I love her, her friendship with Dacia. Yael is one of those characters where, again, that's another one where it's like, is this the villain? It's like she's one of these characters who's just always so honest. But it actually works well in a way where at first it might seem like, is there something, is she just trying to undercut Esty? But there's that moment, you know, when she's performing for them in the kitchen, she's playing piano for them and it starts off well. And then it's like, oh, she's really not at the level she should be to be right. in the conservatory. And you can kind of see it on all of their faces uh, besides Mike, uh, Ackerman's boyfriend, just because he's not, I, I don't think he's part of the conservatory. So he's just like, well, this is nice. Right. Uh, <laughs> but no one's going to say anything. And right. Yael is the one who rips the bandaid off. She's literally not trying to be mean. And they continue on as friends. She gave her the reality check she needed to instead of coddling her, which is, is probably the best thing that could have happened to her coming into the world because it's a huge culture shock. Right. But, it's for the best that they weren't just all going to coddle her throughout this. They're, they're, they treat her like they treat each other, basically. Yeah, it's absolutely brutal to be that explicitly honest. Maybe she didn't have to say it like so harshly in front of everyone. <laughs> but eventually that is what does lead her to change her mind and sing instead. Yeah, I also just really like that. Esty, despite her upbringing, is not judgmental with all of the new experiences she just witnesses from her new friends. Right. Uh, because, you know, you have a gay couple, you, you have uh, Yael, who's from Israel, which, like, contrast that with Moisha when the hotel manager thinks that they're from Israel and uh, his reaction is kind of just like, oh, them, you know. Something that was also, I thought, was interesting about Moisha and Yankee is both of them wearing their um, baseball hats to kind of cover up. And I liked that we kind of had a moment with them it, it kind of paralleled the power of like transformation between both of them and for Esty. Cause you really watch Esty kind of come into her own when she puts on jeans for the first time, or like maybe leaves like one button open just a little bit. Um, and for the men, for Yankee, him putting a hat on and hiding his hair and eventually cutting it by the end of the episode, it, it really means something to kind of hide that from the outside world. Although uh, Moisha's truly the villain for not letting Yankee wear the Yankee hat. Like, yeah, it, that's just me. <laughs> that's really me. 
I do want to talk about Yankee uh, cutting his hair real quick because, yeah. as I said, I, I went back and forth on him, but I kind of feel like that moment is like a desperate act of emotional manipulation in a way. Yeah. It's one of those things where, again, you want to believe he can change, but I, I just, he's like, I'll do one more thing and then she'll, ha- she'll have to come and this will be it. So I, I, I don't feel, as he's sobbing while he does that, I don't feel for him at that moment just because it's like, it's too late. She said no, she's not coming back. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a bold move for him to do and one that I think would seem maybe romantic if those two had had a stronger connection but it, it is an act of desperation and it, it's a bold move for him. I think, again, she, she shaves off her head and that's a really powerful scene towards the start of the season. So it really means something to kind of cut it all off and to take that part of himself away for her. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, he's making this sacrifice much too late and he's not listening to her. He's not really seeing the truth of the situation. Yeah. So now, LaToya, let's listen to the conversation you had with one of the showrunners, Anna Winger, as well as star Shira Haas. Well, uh, first things first, congratulations to both of you for your Emmy nominations you. for Unorthodox. Yeah. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about how you found out you were nominated? Shira, I know you filmed your reaction with uh, Amit that was a fun time. Yes, it was. I mean, I was not expecting to be uh, nominated, but Amit is my neighbor. He lives really nearby and he's a good friend of mine. And it's such a unique moment that it's even a possibility to be nominated. So we just decided to meet each other and to film it just for fun. And then it happened. <laughs> so it just was such a special moment. So we decided to share it with the world. <laughs> and we were very, very excited, both of us. I think the really touching moment about that reaction is they say unbelievable first, and you guys have a moment where you're like, wait, wait, no, no, no. And then they say unorthodox, and you guys lose your minds. Yeah, that- every word felt like forever. So the un before believable felt like two minutes. So I was like, oh my God, it's unorthodox. No, it's unbelievable. <laughs> And I was really happy because I loved Unbelievable, but, you know, I, I hoped for our show and then it happened like one after Unbelievable and we screamed and hugged and I fell out of my bed. Everything happened, you know. <laughs> it was yeah. nuts. I mean, first of all, it was just incredible that the show was nominated and Sheer was nominated. And when we got all these other nominations, we were all like, wait, what? I mean, I dropped <laughs> my phone. I was like crying. Then Alexa and I tried to call each other and the phone wasn't working. And then I tried to call Shira. And then I was like, Alexa, you have to call Shira. Like some of you were all like going, it was like, no, nobody knew which end was up. It was really crazy. <laughs> and obviously when you're creating a work, both as like the creator, writer, and as an actor, obviously you're creating the work to create the work, but was there ever, you know, an idea in your mind, like the work that you were doing is going to be as critically acclaimed as it has been? I don't think you can think about that when you're making it. You know, it's all about the work when you're in it. And, you know, in this case, it was such a tight community of people making it also, you know, we were all very involved with each other, but I was unable to think about it beyond like the making of it while we were in it. And there was a moment in post-production, I mean, which obviously 
um, was fewer people, but where I remember watching it and thinking just that it moved me so much. It's really hard to think about the audience beyond the sort of constellation of collaborators because you can't plan that. I think that would be very difficult. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, we were all so committed to this project and we were all so busy just doing it and doing the best we can with it. I, I, while doing it, I wasn't, I wasn't even thinking that it will be out there. I was just, I wanted to do justice uh, with this role. And of course, I really believed in this project and I wanted to believe that it will touch a lot of people's hearts, but I was not expecting that in, in this amount of, of love and acceptance. It was really beyond what we all expected. And can you talk more about the reception, uh, you know, after it came out this past spring and that, you know, that love and acceptance? Because I, I think it's a very universal story, even if you don't come from this community. And I think that a lot of the reception has been about that universality. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, even when I first read it, uh, the, I mean, I was very curious to read it because, like you said, it is about a specific community. So I was really curious about it. But then while reading it, I was like, I really felt like, I can see myself within Essie, even though I'm, I come from such different circumstances and different place, I still could really relate to that. And I remember hoping that when people watch the show, we'll watch the show, hopefully we'll feel the same. And it happened big time. And I remember the first time I realized that it's, it's happening is when it really came out. And it, I was in lockdown when it came out in Israel, like a full lockdown. I was, we were not able to leave our homes at all and I went out to my balcony and I think I sent you an, a, a video of that Anna. <laughs> and yeah. I saw so many televisions open in Tel Aviv from different like buildings that people are watching unorthodox I think like five <laughs> at the same time and I was like whoa <laughs> something is happening and then of course days went by and we got so many comments and reactions from people yeah, it happened. What I felt from the script unbelievably happened also to other people who watched that. I think for all of us, it was this incredible thing that it really crossed borders of culture and faith and, you know, we, and gender. I mean, we had, you know, men writing to us and saying, you know, Esty's story is my story. Like people coming yeah. from all kinds of communities. And it was really very inclusive in that way, you know, and we, I remember the first, realizing that this was happening. I mean, first of all, if you've never made a show for Netflix, there's first of all the just incredible shock that, that 190 countries just received the same material. You know, <laughs> that's just already when you start getting, you know, notes from people in Kenya and Saudi Arabia and Japan, and then you're like, they're all watching the show. And that was very, you know, I knew my mom was going to watch it. You know what I mean? That, that was, <laughs> not like, <laughs> and uh, my friends, you know, but it's, it was still very wild when it started catching on in places that have nothing to do with the Jewish community, nothing to do with the Satmar community, nothing to do with Jews in general. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't what it was about for yeah. many audiences. It was, it was really about this young woman's journey, also Yankee's journey, people identified with really strongly. And, you know, these two young people who are really struggling to find themselves in a space that is, just not, or a situation that's just not, they can't make it work. I think a lot of people felt identified with that in a way that was, you know, that we all identified with it. And I think I just wanted to say that one of the magic things about the book is just, and about Deborah Feldman in general, is she has an incredible empathy. 
she, she deeply relates to other people and she connects in a way that's very special. And I think that, you know, while we changed many things about the show, you know, it, it's, we activated the story very differently on screen as, as the book, which is obviously a memoir and very internal, but I, we would try to tr stay true to the spirit of the book, which is yeah. very empathetic and very emotionally connected in a way, you know? So that was one of our goals in the making of it. And you bring up uh, Deborah's memoir of the same name, Unorthodox. And can you just talk to me about adapting a memoir, a, a person's real story to create this show, uh, that whole process, and especially the process of changing certain elements up, the Berlin aspect specifically, obviously, of her life story. Well, you know, I had never adapted anything before because I make, I make another show, but everything is made up. And so... So I, I, in a, I mean, first of all, it was Deborah who suggested that we do this and it was, you know, we're friends. So at first I thought like, I, I don't even know how to do that. But then she was very encouraging and she was like, listen, you know, just take the creative freedom that you need. Cause I, I thought it has to be really different. And I was um, working with Alexa and there was one thing we did that really helped, which is we changed all the names. Mm -hmm. And once we did change the names, it sort of became something new, you know, it became something different. And we gave ourselves the creative freedom to kind of break it apart and put it back together. Because I think that, you know, the, in the best case, the adapted version of something becomes its own art piece, you know, its own work of art in some way and its own animal. And, um, and Alexa and I had to find, you know, I created the show with Alexa Karolinski, who's a filmmaker and, you know, also comes to this as an artist. And I think we needed to find this place where we could make it our own. And once we'd sort of set ourselves free from the original, then we could kind of make our own thing, but stay true to what we loved about the original. And I think that was always the goal. And we, and just a key choice we made was to focus from the book, we focused on the arranged marriage and the kind of disillusion of this marriage and everything from the moment she leaves home, we made up. And we activated her husband's character because he's not, you don't see things from his perspective in the book. Yeah. And then we made up everything in Berlin because, you know, Deborah is a young woman and she's a quite well-known person uh, in Germany. And it was important to us that this not be a sort of biopic, you know, that this be, that the present day of this, of this young woman's life be different from Deborah's, you know, that we weren't going to try and follow Deborah around town, you know, that it was, she needs to have the freedom to, live her life too. So we needed to fictionalize that. And that also was where the, it was fun to make things up. Mm -hmm. And Shira, while obviously Anna and Alexa made a lot of things up for the story, how did you approach playing essentially a, a real life person, uh, an SD spinning off from Deborah? Yeah, it was a big challenge. I mean, I, I've never played a character that is based or inspired by a real person, a real story, yes, but not a real person. So, I mean, I remember when I heard it based on the book or inspired by the book, I read the books, I think like, uh, maybe like five times <laughs> and no, and, but really, and I marked like a lot of stuff and took a lot of it as much as I could. And at the same time, like Anna mentioned before, it was really important for us not to try to be Deborah, to imitate like a Deborah. So for example, I did not meet Deborah just, I think the first time I've met her was after we started filming, it was with Anna actually went to, for brunch together. <laughs> I was very excited to meet her. But up until this point, I did not meet her. It was really important 
for me to take a lot as much as I can from her story, for her amazing story and her amazing book, but also to create something of my own, of our own, to make Esty, you know, it's not just a different name. It's really like a character of, of her own. So, yeah, and it's a big responsibility. I mean, I always felt like the, the need to do justice with the story and the fact that it's inspired by a, a real person. And, you know, a lot of stories that are inspired by or based on real stories, it's either sometimes dead people or very old people. And Deborah is not so far from my age. I mean, we're close friends. She's like a few years older than me. So I really, I mean, I, yeah, I felt a, a lot of responsibility to do also justice with her story. And after she watched it, she really texted me that she watched it. And I was so nervous. I wrote her and, and then she called me and she was very emotional and very happy. So I was very relieved, definitely. Yeah, that's definitely a good sign. <laughs> right. But while you did, you know, create your own character and approach to this, was there anything specifically from the book that you, you noted that you thought, like, this is something I, I have to bring to this character? Yes. Whether it's, for example, the relationship with Bobby, which is also a bit different from the book, but you, I mean, you could really sense from Deborah's book her special connection to her, Bobby, Bobby is her grandmother, I'm sorry, <laughs> to her grandmother, and that it's really like, you know, the, the person that she's most close to. So it's something that I really took and was very meaningful for me. And also, also a lot of scenes, I remember the first meeting with the auntie, for example, in the book and in the script is, I mean, there are a lot of similarities, even in, even in the, the lines themselves. I remember meeting with Deborah after we filmed this scene and we talked about it and she was like, oh my God, how did you say this line? How did you say I'm different from the other girls? And I was like, I told her I was I was doing it for real. I told her if we don't wish we don't do a mindless. And she was like, Oh my god, this is exactly how I said that <laughs> So I mean I took as much as I could and, and of course also the essence and her feelings um and her dream I think to be belonged, you know, that's what I always felt from reading the book. Even when she was in Williamsburg, you can feel from the book that she was trying so hard to fit in, even before she even dreamed about leaving or anything like that. It was always about being perfect, being like to fit in somewhere. This is something that really motivated Deborah, and I think that is something that also was Esty's goal. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Anna, obviously you cast all Jewish actors for an Orthodox could you discuss, I guess, the decision uh, to do that, but also the process of doing that? Because you, you hear so much about how hard it is to, to cast certain types of people, but you made it seem pretty easy with unorthodox. Well, yeah, you know, I really followed the debate around, well, this now this is tangential, but to us it was really important because we're working in Germany where there's been a lot of films and TV projects that speak to Jewish history. I mean, because obviously... German history and, and Jewish history intersect. Um, so there's been a lot of projects made around the Holocaust that don't involve any Jews at all, right? Where all the actors are, are German and everybody on both sides of the camera is German. And, you know, as Jews living in Germany, this is something that, that, that Alexa and I already had talked about quite a bit. I just, it's something you notice, you know, you think it's strange to have other people tell stories that feel um, like our stories, you know? But, there, but there's also a simpler a thing, which is just that the language, you know, if, if you, like my grandparents spoke Yiddish, I don't speak it. It's, it's, a, 
it is the language of Ashkenazi Jews. You know, it's like we have this history and it was not easy to find people who could speak and more than speak, who could not perform and, and, and inhabit the language, right? So there's a few people, there's a few young people on earth who speak Yiddish as a native language and all of them are people who grew up Satmar and left, you know, like Jeff Wilbush, who plays Moisha mm-hmm. and um, Ellie Rosen, who plays the rabbi, but, and some of the other characters, um, smaller characters were played by um, ex-Satmar actors as well. But, um, you know, when it came to casting the whole cast, it felt really important to us that people have some connection to the language, some kind of shorthand understanding of the culture. And it's also, I mean, the spectrum of Jewish experience is really broad. And, you know, certainly I'm at one end and Deborah's childhood is at the other, but we do have, I mean, the thing that was really striking for me doing the research was just how much we have in common. I, I hadn't really expected to feel like that to the extent that I, that I do. And, um, you know, they might not see it, right? But I really felt it. Like, I felt much more connected than I expected to. So it was an important choice that we made that resulted in a really healthy conversation around Jewishness and culture and diaspora culture, you know, on set. I mean, we had people from all over the world, you know, Jews have been sort of flung around the world and that's our history. And so we had people from Romania, Israel, Paris, London, uh, obviously New York, California, all shooting in Berlin, which in effect is kind of, you know, Central Europe is where sort of the origin of, of Ashkenazi culture. So it was a pretty interesting experience, you know. And, I, you know, obviously it shows through in the final product and in, in the documentary uh, that comes along with the, just showing the process and the behind the scenes and this community you've all created with this project. And Shira, neither English nor Yiddish are your native languages, yet <laughs> you speak them both uh, heavily in the series. What was the experience like learning Yiddish for the series? Yeah, uh, it's been both also like a specific dialect for the English. Um, and also, of course, learning Yiddish, which I did not know before at all. I mean, my grandparents used to talk with my parents a little bit, but I never heard that. And once I understood that I'm going to learn it, I was very excited. Uh, also, that I'm able to do that also for them in a way. And also for me, I, I, I'm a bit of a nerd. I love learning <laughs> about new cultures. I love learning new languages and accents. That's part of why I love acting so much, part of this research that I'm grateful for doing. Uh, so yeah, like Anna's mentioned before, we had Ellie Rosen that plays our rabbi. He was also our um, religious consultant and our Yiddish uh, teacher. He basically uh, saved my life. <laughs> I spent uh, days with him, hours. I recorded him and I recorded myself doing the lines. He gave me notes and I was writing everything down also in English and Hebrew. And I listened to that while I was like washing my dishes. <laughs> you know, I really, I went to sleep with Yiddish and woke up with Yiddish because it was not only about learning my lines, it was really about understanding really every word that I'm saying. Um, and to be able to go on set and on action and not to even think about what I'm saying, but to be just like Effie, that it's her language, right? It's her, she's fluent with it. And I'll be able to change it a little bit and, and like emphasize different words if I get notes from Maria or anything like that. So that was, yeah, one of the biggest challenges probably. It was actually fun also to do that. And it really helped me also to dive into the character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it has to be said. Like, she's an insane talent. Sorry. <laughs> I for hearing it. But, like, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, so I did it because it was really fun. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> but most people couldn't do it at all, you know. So that was, it, was, yeah. it was an amazing, unbelievable process to work with her. I, I'm just curious. You've created two complete whole worlds with this series, you know, both the New York part of it where you guys filmed and then Berlin you, you filmed. And just how was that experience? It's kind of like a culture shock in itself when you're, you're filming this, right? Because you're going from this very conservative world that you're filming and to the big, large, bustling world of Berlin. Yeah. I, I personally, I had two scripts. I really separated it. I had a script of Williamsburg and a different script of Berlin. Completely different. It was also important for me because when you see this show, you see suddenly a flashback and back to Berlin and a flashback and back to Berlin. But I wanted to have like a chronological order for me as an actress, because that's, that's what I need to think of. So it was important for me to do that. And luckily for me, and uh, I can say thank you for Anna, for, to Anna for that. We started actually the shooting, um, we shot it in Berlin, but we started with the Williamsburg scene, with the past uh, scene, which really helped because I mean, of course, it wasn't completely chronological, not at all, but it helped to begin with that because we started with the Yiddish, we started with the family, with the Mishpuche, as you say, in Yiddish, with all of our actors uh, from Williamsburg. And then after finishing it, we moved to Berlin, to the outside as well, to all the musicians. And besides being very, that it's been very helpful chronological, even for me as an actress, uh, as like character's emotional journey, suddenly working with all the, you know, the Williamsburg cast and talking Yiddish all day, but and suddenly, boom, uh, switching to new cast that I barely know, talking only English, not, not English at all. I felt like Esther, I was like, what? Where am I? What is going on? And suddenly I was not, I was without my wig or my, the tichel or the hat. I was with my shaved or buzz cut hair. So it really also helped for me that it was suddenly different. And yes, it was important for me to realize the chronological journey that is going through. And yeah. <laughs> Anna, what about you? Uh, you had to wrangle everyone for both of these worlds. Well, me and, and everybody else I was working with. I mean, yeah. I just want to emphasize it was a whole group of us who made this show and it was very collaborative and we really had one vision for it, which was great. And, um, you know, from the beginning with Maria, one of our discussions was Maria's the director, Maria Schrada. You know, we had this idea that it should really be heightened and that you're seeing the world through Esty's experience of it, right? So, you know, in, in Williamsburg, it's darker. And it, when you get to Berlin, you know, it's in brighter colors, it's rounder architecture. It's just, you're sort of discovering the world for the first time. And Alexa's from Berlin and she was very particular about uh, the architecture. She had a really strong sense of like which buildings. Uh, and that was really fun to discuss. You know, we had this sort of cotton candy landscape, you know, it's bright yellow houses and bright green houses and stuff. So we wanted it to be like, she's discovering herself in the world and you're kind of in this expressionistic landscape. But it was also that like something that was really important to, to me and to Alexa about showing Berlin as, uh, you know, this place that, that attracts people from all over the world and unlikely groups of people come together here, which is very much my experience of the city. And it is, you know, we, the uh, music academy in the show is modeled on a real academy 
um, that's called the Berenbaum Said Academy, where uh, Jews and Arabs play classical music together. And it's this kind of utopia project that could only exist here. So it just seemed like a really good setting for this kind of project. And yeah, you know, what's been interesting in Germany, since you're interested in sort of the reaction to the show, is that around the world, I think many people thought like, I now I want to go to Berlin, like this is so interesting. And then a lot of Germans from other parts of the country commented, you know, like, that's not my Berlin, or that's not the Berlin that I know. And I thought that was interesting, because, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm a foreigner here. And I have such a wide range of friends from all over the place that I've met. I've lived here for 18 years. So I have a really wide range of, of friends. It's really international. But it was interesting that the German reaction, I mean, they love the show, but they, their one comment was like, I've never been to that Berlin. So then I thought that was interesting, you know? It was like, well, come on over, you know? Come on over to this side. So. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, Shira and Anna. This, was, this has been great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for listening to Little Gold Women, sponsored by Netflix. You can find me on Twitter at Magna Farda and on the Blank Check podcast. And you can find me uh, at LaFergs on Twitter and at RondaRousey.com, as well as my Vampire Diaries rewatch podcast, The Empire Diaries. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. From PR.